What day is it, Tom? It's Friday. <laughs> it is, although that's not, the not answer when you're people are listening. For, is it? That's not the answer I'm looking for. <laughs> no, no. Sorry. it is, it's... of course, very early on a Thursday morning where we're coming to you live. <laughs> <laughs> Should we try this again? No. <laughs> no, we're going to no, stick with we've that. we've broken the fourth wall. <laughs> okay, we're going to stick with that. Hello and welcome to That Was Genius. Sorry about our intro. If it hasn't put you off already, welcome to the podcast. Every week, me, myself, Sam, and my friend Tom talk to each other from different sides of the world about an incredible history story we've discovered over the week. There's a topic to each week, but everything else that happens is a mystery and completely spontaneous, so there's lots of swearing, lots of laughter, and a good time is had by all. If you enjoy this podcast, please do subscribe to us on your favourite podcasting app, and maybe leave us a review. It all makes a huge difference. Anyway, on with the show. Well, I think the answer you were looking for was something like podcast day. That was what I was hoping for. Okay, okay, sorry. I mean, I'll take... Frankly, Tom, I'll take whatever I can get from you. It's <laughs> fair, fair enough. <laughs> I've been working since five in the morning. I'm, I'm happy with whatever I can give. Yeah, so you're doing a reverse Dolly Parton, aren't you? Because you're recording now at 9pm, so you've literally been working five to nine. I mean, what a way to yeah, make a living. Absolutely. Been working five to nine. It's all taken and no given, Tom. Is that another verse of the song? I Yes, it's, it's nine to five by Dolly Parton. Even you have enough culture in you to know what that is. I, I've heard the song, but I don't know any of the lyrics really. Oh, fair enough. Been working nine to five, got to make myself a living. Working nine to five, it's all taking and no giving. Which, incidentally, is a great intro to this week's topic, isn't it, Tom? It is really, isn't it? Yeah, R, I should say. R, R is. It, R, R, it be. Arr. It do be. Because this week's topic, Tom, arr, what arr. be she? It be pirates, Tom. There be pirates on the podcast. Uh, it is. It's pirates. <laughs> Have you enjoyed this week? I've had a great time this week. Yes, this is good, solid, blokey boys' adventure history, isn't it? I was thinking exactly the same thing, actually. <laughs> uh, when I was researching us, I was thinking this podcast is a little bit masculine with its topics, isn't it? It is. We are choosing stereotypically masculine historical topics. But no, this I reckon this has probably been the most enjoyable and easy to research, the topic of pirates. Wholeheartedly agree, yeah. I've had a great time with this one. But in, a, in an effort to make it less blokey, I have chosen a female pirate. Oh, there are quite a few famous female pirates. Yeah. Good on you. I haven't, although I have, I have chosen a feisty Frenchman. <laughs> Is there any other kind? <laughs> Is there any other kind of Frenchman? Which kind of does tee up some more dreadful French accents. But uh, combined with pirates. Thankfully. Yes. Have you been practising your pirate French accent? No, I haven't, but I, I'll, I'm willing to give it a go. I'll try anything. Ooh, yar, yar. <laughs> Je suis Francaise. <laughs> Shiver, c'est la vie. I don't know. I don't... Ah, mais oui. Quel tempest kills. <laughs> I think that was what time is it? Was that what time? Is you... Anyway. Quel est la date de ton anniversaire? <laughs> le lapin dans le pantalon, sir. Je voudrais une yacht banane. 
Uh, I would like a banana yogurt. Oh, and that excellent. is the limit of my French, but I don't think we. I, let's not ruin this now. Let's not give the audience what they want just yet. We have to have a little bit of um, podcast foreplay first. Mine was uh, there is a rabbit in my pants. <laughs> I don't know if you picked up on that. I don't know how good your French I did, is. I did, I did, worse than that, <laughs> I did not pick up on that. Okay. I got a GCSE B in French somehow. Anyway. I got an A, but I really have no idea how. Could it be something to do with the fact that part of your surname is French? Sam, have you not got an unfair advantage here? <laughs> I don't think that gives me points. <laughs> Did you? I thought you have a French oh, parent. But you, sound, but you sound French, so you must be French. <laughs> you may as well just pass the exam. You had a French parent, didn't you? No, German. Did you? You've got a German for parent. I've got a German for parent, yes. That's some <laughs> good grammar. You've got a... You very specifically said, and the podcast will prove you have a German for parent. <laughs> no, I, I don't think I did, but I'm, I'm happy to listen to the recording and find <laughs> You have a German parent. Well, there you go. But I've got a half German parent. I didn't realise that. So. Have we got to toss something? We've got to t- the next stage is to toss, isn't it? That is, that is indeed the next stage of our podcast foreplay is the traditional tossing. Yeah, we're phase toss. We are at second base. What have I got today to toss? I've got a taxi receipt, Tom. Great. Where were you going in the taxi? I was going to my in-laws. <laughs> I like the way you introduced that like Michael Barrymore on a game show. My <laughs> in-laws. <laughs> like they're about to do supermarket sweep. Let's have a look at what you could have won. <laughs> <laughs> so would you like the side with the actual taxi receipt on it or the other side which has an advert for a computer repair service? Oh, computer repair service is always a fun topic. Excellent. Not a particularly interesting thing to flip this week, but there we go. It's flipped. Sound good, though. And it did sound great, didn't it? And you win, Tom. Right. This is the first time I've won in quite a few weeks. I am going to go first. Ha ha. Go on, then. As I've mentioned before, I've chosen a nasty, nasty Frenchman of a pirate. But before I explain (laughs) who that French person is, he is a nasty, nasty French person, I've been reading a book called The History of the Buccaneers of America by a chap called Alexander Exquemelin. Which is quite a mouthful. Do you know, I tried to take that book out of my local library and someone had taken it out. They had a copy. You did that this week? Yeah. Well, Sam, you, you could have just gone on the internet and got the free audio book, which I've been listening to all week. It's on... Um... You site you really like that has all of these books in audiobook form, doesn't it? Yes, yeah, so it has LibriVox. You've mentioned it before. Bit of a shout out. LibriVox. LibriVox, very, very good. There was another website where I found the full print of it as well. So I managed to print out all the chapters that I wanted to look at. So there you go. So we were going down a similar <laughs> route. And the reason why we probably both stumbled across this quite early on in our research is it is one of the most important early primary sources with regards to the sort of stereotypical piracy of the early modern period so you know the peter pan and the pirates the treasure island the pirates of the caribbean style of pirate um it's written by this chap called alexander exquemelin who himself was a buccaneer and it's from this period when lots of the european empires were exploring the new world and battling for sort of supremacy in the new world and we've got the spanish being the dominant power in central america hence the term the spanish main yes which was that portion of central america and the majority of the caribbean islands were under the control of the spanish and that's where a lot of this piracy takes place and all you've got to do is watch your pirates of the caribbean you see that most of it is taking place in the caribbean hence the name 
And this book, this primary source, is mostly written about Captain Henry Morgan, who is pretty damn famous as far as pirates go. He now has, of course, a rum named after him. I had no idea Captain Morgan was a real person. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. He was a Welsh privateer and one of the early privateers as well. So we're talking the 1630s. I think that's correct, 1630s. Exquemelin, so the chap who writes this book about the history of the buccaneers of America, was actually working for Morgan. He worked upon some of his ships. He was Flemish, maybe Dutch, and he was a pirate and a barber surgeon. So Captain Henry Morgan was given a letter of mark, which was basically permission by the English government to harass Spanish ships and just be a, basically a pain in the arse for the Spanish Empire. Um, he actually later became a lieutenant governor of Jamaica as well, so he got into politics after this. This is quite common, isn't it, for privateers to be actually quite high-ranking gentlemen and to end up in quite cushy government jobs, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's a very fluid political situation in these areas of the world that the European powers are trying to claim for themselves and so you could probably rise up the ranks quite quickly. I don't actually know whether Henry Morgan was um, posh by birth, you know, whether he was from a wealthy family because I didn't really look into it that much. The majority of the book is about Captain Henry Morgan uh, but I'm actually not going to talk about him. I'm going to talk about another chap who has three chapters of this book devoted to him and that's this horrible, nasty French pirate called Francis Lollanese. <laughs> Lollanese? Lollanese. His, his name has got various versions. I've gone for Francis Lollanese because it's the easiest to pronounce, and it sounds like mayonnaise. It does. It sounds like lol and mayonnaise. <laughs> <laughs> it does, like rufflecopters. Or... What's rufflecopters? Uh, you know ruffle is roll on the floor laughing. Oh, I didn't know that was. Sorry. You have Rufflecopters and Lolcano. Lolcano. I see what they've done there. So I'm gonna, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk about Francis Mayonnaise, as we're gonna call him from now on. <laughs> His real name actually was Jean David Lou. I don't know why he changed his name to Francis Bolognese. But anyway, Jean-David Lowe was his original <laughs> name. I'll refer to him as... I'm trying to think of another thing that rhymes with Lollanese to um, call him this third time, but I can't think. I've used Bolognese and mayonnaise, and I'm stuck. Purple haze? <laughs> <laughs> Francis, purple haze. Go on, Sam, do the riff. I uh, don't... No, no, I can't, actually. I can't think of the song now. I don't... Anyway, when you, when you, when you remember it, just... Go with it. Just start. Okay, just start. I mean, that's Led Zeppelin, isn't it? But yeah. <laughs> you know, just do it. Anyway, so Alexander X. Gwemelin first publishes this book in 1678. It's originally in Dutch, then it gets translated into German, Spanish and English. And quite a lot is added each time. So the stories get a little bit more extravagant and a little bit more extreme each time it's translated. Now, the translation I read and I've been listening to and I'm using for this podcast is from 1914. And it's based on the original English translation. So it's probably one of the more exaggerated accounts. But hey, let's not get too pernickety about the provenance of this. Let's just have a bit of fun with the source. Uh, in fact, actually, before I go on, it's worth also noting that actually Henry Morgan brought a libel suit against Dick Scremlin and won it. So it's, that's how primary... Really? Yeah, that's how primary this source is. How good is that? Well, I love that pirates are suing each other for libel. <laughs> yeah. Not very piratical, is it? It does No, it's not. What I particularly like about this is obviously libel is suing people for defamation for saying things that are untrue. But one of the kind of the, the tests that you had to prove in England is that the libel damages your character among your peers. So it's damaged his character as a pirate, is the claim. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah. I uh, love that. It's, it's, yeah, I wish I had the time to find out more about Captain Henry Morgan, but by all accounts, he was a bit of a bastard as well. I don't think he was the nicest chap in the world. But again, we've got the English translation. We don't know what the original Dutch translation was like. It could have had him portrayed as a lovely, lovely, lovely chap. He was just sailing around <laughs> and politely asking the Spaniards, yeah, it's a pleasure of mine, you know, just give me your cargo, would you? You know, and then when nobody has to shoot any guns, nobody has to get hurt. He could have been a lovely <laughs> chap. Anyway, before I go on then and speak about Francis Lollanese, I came across some other interesting facts. And this was when I started reading a book called The History of Buccaneers of America, which is from 1816. And I was reading this sort of accidentally, but I just came across two bits of information which I thought were really interesting. Do you know where the word buccaneer comes from? Now, a buck is a dollar in America, isn't it? Is is there any kind of link there? That's a good shout, actually. But no, absolutely not. But I can see where you'd be going with that. (laughs) We tried, we failed. (laughs) Yeah, there's no harm in trying, is there? Buccaneer. So the original Spanish hunters on the Spanish main adopted a native method of curing meat. And they basically cooked it on a barbecue. And actually the term barbecue is a Native American term. And then cured it into buchan. So that was the name of the cured meat. So it became buccaneers. So that's it, because they adopted a form of barbecuing that the natives were using. I like this fact. Here is the best one of all, Sam. Now, this is quite possibly the most interesting fact of any of the podcasts we've done before, in my opinion. So, a French word, filibustier, was that was beautifully pronounced, wasn't it? It was beautifully pronounced, a filibuster. Did you feel like you were in a cafe somewhere in Paris? I felt like I just had a coffee slammed in front of me grumpily <laughs> by a monsieur with a twiddly moustache who doesn't like the look of me. <laughs> because you're clearly English. Well, some dicker blows smoke in my face, yeah. Filibustier. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the name of the French buccaneers very early on in this period of piracy. And it's actually a French pronunciation of the English term freebooter. So before they became uh. known as buccaneers, buccaneers, they were called filibustiers or freebooters. Here's the interesting bit, though. Go on. I was about to say, I've just been looking at my notes and I didn't actually put this bit in my notes. Lucky I've remembered it. <laughs> Lucky I've remembered interesting it. interesting bit. So oh, interesting that I forgot to write it down. <laughs> I thought you were just building the tension with a bit of dramatic <laughs> pause. <laughs> no, and I was just panicking and trying to find where I had the bit of information written down and wondering why I had some other information written down, which is less interesting. And they say... Tom, so, you've styled this out like a champ. <laughs> beautifully. So the... Yeah, Philip Bustier, that word has evolved into modern English as the word filibustering, which yes. is p- political terminology for trying to prevent legislation by just talking bollocks for as long as it takes to prevent that legislation from being passed. Filibustering. Yes. <laughs> there you go. I thought the Philip, Philip Bustier, whatever they called it, sounded very similar. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. You can definitely see where it comes from. There's a few other actually quite famous modern phrases that have a nautical maritime origin. Do you know where the phrase to swing a cat comes from? Enough room to swing a cat. That was the cat and nine tails, Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's enough room to swing a cat and nine tails, which was a form of punishment, wasn't it? Yes, it was a whip with uh, nine tails with knots tied in them, leather knots, and they would strap you across the back if you were being a bit of a dick at sea. Yeah, that's it. There you go. Anyway, enough sidelining. Let me get on to the meaty part of what I'm going to discuss. Enough there. filibustering, Tom. An- oh, yes, enough filibustering. Let's talk about Francis Lollanese, the French pirate, born 1630. <laughs> Three chapters of this book are devoted to his exploits, and all of the information that I'm going to draw about this chap is from straight from this source. I'm not going to piss around with any other sources, so I'm straight from this source. Boom. 
So this chap arrives in the Caribbean as a servant slash slave. He becomes a common mariner and is observed to be very brave on ship when involved in fighting and things. The governor of Tortuga, which is Haiti, and by all accounts, Tortuga is just a haven for, for ruffians, pirates. Have you ever watched the book? <laughs> the name evokes it, doesn't it? I mean, Tortuga is ah. a very piratical name. Yeah. Have you ever watched the book? with Robin Williams. Yes, in fact that was my primary source for my research today. <laughs> there's um there's a pirate town in that and that's what I imagine Tortuga to be like. Just pirates getting drunk and throwing glasses around and swinging on chandeliers and all sorts of misbehaving. Yes, absolutely. The governor of Tortuga gives Lolonese permission to harass Spanish ships at will. So he basically gives him a letter of mark just like Captain Henry Morgan had. And he quickly becomes very notorious through some successful adventures. Here's a quote. The Spaniards in his time would choose rather to die or sink fighting than surrender, knowing they would have no mercy at his hands. In a previous podcast that we've done, Sam, I I made a um, a facetious comment about how amusing it is to see um, a French person looking for a fight. And I was alluding to the (laughs) stereotype of a Frenchman busy painting a piece of artwork and getting all over emotional when someone has, I don't know, knocked over his coffee. I would not want to cross Lollanese. I mean, this is a Frenchman who sounded like a... He was hard as nails. Despite his name. A psychopath, (laughs) despite sounding like a condiment. He he sounds like a revolting chap. Destroy your own preconception, Tom. Absolutely, I did. I blew it apart. I blew apart my own stereotypical preconceptions, my biases of French people. It's all right. Most of them are like what you said before. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for... Thanks for building that back up again, that stereotype. <laughs> He's almost killed quite early on in this account of his life. Exquemelin tells us that he gets shipwrecked on the Mexican coast and the Spaniards pursue his crew, kill most of them, but Lollanese manages to escape by pretending to be dead and covering himself in the blood of many of his own pirates who are around him. When the Spaniards leave the scene of the fight, he visits the nearby town in disguise where the Spaniards retreated to and hears about the Spaniards are celebrating the fact that they've killed him because he's quite a notorious pirate by this point. He then escapes the mainland and returns to Tortuga, which, quote, is a refuge for all sorts of wickedness. And it seems to be this event that makes Lollanese really hate the bloody Spaniards. He really hates the Spaniards from here on in. Donkey chucking chorizo-eating bastards. Yeah, what did you say? Donkey chucking. Did you say? I slightly missed that. I might have done. <laughs> donkey donkey chucking. So Lollanese is, is stuffed. He has to build himself back up again, having lost pretty much everything. So he gets himself a small boat, finds himself 21 men who are willing to support him, and he heads to Cuba. He's spotted by fishermen near the town that he targets and the people of that town alert the governor in Havana and the governor in Havana sends 10 guns and 90 men to this small town to ward off Lollanese and they're told to be merciless with the pirates and with Lollanese. I have to say that is quite a response for 21 men in a dinghy rocking up isn't it? I think this guy's got a pretty he's got a (laughs) reputation. There's a lot of this going on I suspect so I suspect that there's a lot of piracy and the Spaniards are probably getting a bit fed up with it and are trying to nip it in the bud and as we'll find out, when one of these pirates like Lollanese gets a streak of victories, it does build up momentum. He soon gets himself quite a fleet. Um, so at this stage, it's only 21 men in a small boat. He manages with his men to sneak up on this boat full of men sent from the governor in Havana with the help of some local servants. And they take the boat pretty easily, I think at two in the morning, if I remember correctly. 
And once they've taken the boat and taken the men prisoners, they behead every single Spaniard one by one. They bring them up on deck and just chop their heads off. Actually, they send one back to Havana with a message from Lolanes saying that he will give no quarter to any Spaniards in the future. Jesus. They're pretty brutal. Pretty brutal, yeah. You weren't lying when you said he was quite a psychopathic Frenchman. <laughs> no, yeah, it's this, this isn't the cute image of pirates that we, we have in popular culture. It's quite repulsive how they behave. They're really not very pleasant people. No. <laughs> no, so... Who'd have thought? Yeah, who'd have thought being that they were pirates? Come at me surprised. Yeah, so, so Lolonais now has himself a good ship, but he hasn't got many provisions, he hasn't got many men, so he's got a good ship, but he's still probably got only that 21 men or so. So he cruises the local ports looking for a bit of trouble and finally surprises a ship full of plate and other merchandise near Maracaibo, which is in Venezuela. He succeeds in capturing that ship and he returns to Tortuga very, very wealthy and uses all this merchandise that he's caught to equip a fleet with over 600 men in eight boats to take to Maracaibo. Hang on, this was a ship full of plates that he... I, th- I think by plate... It, I don't Are we know talking silver means. plates rather than crockery? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Presumably refers to just silver. I assumed it was, but I just thought I'd check that it wasn't a boatload of fine china. <laughs> he just completely destroyed by firing his cannons at it. <laughs> <laughs> this town of Tortuga full of mean-hearted pirates, they love having their meals served off matching cutlery and <laughs> yes. plateware. Nothing makes a pirate more angry, Tom. Than mismatched cutlery and crockery. <laughs> then chips in their bowls. <laughs> so he's got these 600 men, eight boats that he takes to Maracaibo. He quite quickly takes two more ships. The first one has lots of cocoa. It's got 40,000 pieces of eight and 10,000 pieces of eight worth of jewels. It's also got 16 guns. Let's do the math. So it's 5,000 pieces is 40,000 pieces of eight. What is a piece of eight? It's, it's actually a Spanish dollar. So good question, Sam. Ah. So a piece of eight is the Spanish dollar and it's the first international standardised currency because of its uniformity and sheer volume. And Spain discovered huge reserves of silver when it captured Bolivia and Mexico. So it basically flooded the international currency market with pieces of eight. So there you go. It's a Spanish dollar. Interesting. So called because it's equivalent to eight reals. Is that true? Have you just Googled that? That's what Google's telling me. <laughs> Excellent. It must be, must be true. Excellent. So there it is. So that's what pieces of eight are. So next time you hear someone going, pieces of eight, pieces of eight, which I think is a Treasure Island reference. I think it's the parrot from Treasure Island goes, yeah. pieces of eight, pieces of eight. So this is full of interesting facts, Sam. It is. It's like interesting facts left, right and centre. You've got to like dodge them like Neo from The Matrix. You've just got interesting facts pinging at you from every direction. I don't want to miss these interesting facts, though, Tom. I'm trying to gobble them up. <laughs> I'm jumping into the path of these interesting facts and saying, hit me with it. Like Pac-Man, like a cross between Pac-Man and Neo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pac-Man with a leather jacket. Twat me with your fact stick, Tom. <laughs> Twat me with your fact stick. <laughs> Let's release that as a single, Sam, when this podcast becomes really successful. <laughs> twat me with your fact stick. Twat me. Twat me. Twat me fast and twat me quick. Twat me, twat me, twat me. So, I'll, I'll see if I can twat you again with my fact stick. Go on. I'm waiting, Tom. Oh, you're waiting for it. Well, I'm going to take you by surprise with my fact stick. I don't like people to be prepared. <laughs> I like to creep up, creep up on them before I twat them with my fact stick. Knocked out with knowledge. <laughs> yeah. Ah, oh, now where was I? Oh, so he quickly takes these two Spanish ships. He get the second ship they capture has eight guns, lots of muskets, lots of gunpowder, and twelve thousand pieces of eight. So you can see how much wealth 
could be gained by capturing a few ships. There's a lot to be gained here. Yeah, the Spanish were just chucking the cash around, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I guess it's a major trade route, isn't it? Because this is new Spanish land, and there's lots of ships coming from Spain to the Spanish main, which is obviously Central America. So there's probably a lot of... Yeah, a lot of ships to pick on. So Maracaibo, which is the place that uh, Lolonese has now set his eyes on, sits between the Gulf of Venezuela and a lake called Lago de Maracaibo. And there's a narrow piece of water between the gulf and between the lake. It looks like it's a saltwater lake from Google Maps. I had a look at it yesterday. So this is part of the route. So further into the lake lies a town of Gibraltar, and that's going to become important later on in this story. So Lolonese men quite quickly take a fort on the entrance to the narrowest part of this stretch of water. Many of the Spaniards escape the attack, and then sort of spread the message to Maracaibo that Lollanese is on his way with uh, quite a few ships, and you know what this Frenchman's like, everyone knows he's a bit of a bastard, and so they all retreat to Gibraltar. Lollanese men then turn up at Maracaibo, find it undefended, they have a whale of a time eating all the food that they find, because they've had presumably a, a few months of sailing on not many provisions, so they're delighted to find all this food. But they realise also that the inhabitants have escaped with their treasures into the local woods, so men are sent into those woods to round up anyone they can find. They return with some slaves, well basically they return with some of the inhabitants and make them slaves, with some mules laden with valuables and about 20,000 pieces of eight. But that's not good enough for Lollanese, he's not happy there. <clears throat> Let me turn my paper. My notes are so, <laughs> so voluminous that I've got three pieces of paper today. It sounds like good quality paper stock as well, Tom. It sounds like you've printed this in quality. Yep, I've printed it on papyrus. <laughs> so he tortures these Spaniards. They're tortured on a rack and made to confess where they hide their riches. Another example of Lollanese being a bastard. He is a bit of a prick, isn't he? Yes, because these are just normal people now, aren't they? They're not sailors or... No, they're just normal. They're just townsfolk. Yeah, they're townsfolk who are just trying to protect what they own. And yeah, he's torturing them. So he's torturing them, making them confess where they hide all their money. It's actually quite interesting this time because you hear this account of what people were doing when they felt like their village, their town was under threat. And they're all going and hiding their riches. And this is actually something that we know from, for example, British history when the Romans left in 410 AD. And we get that sort of dark age, don't we, where... Um, lots of Anglo-Saxon tribes start coming into Britain. And there's a lot of hordes that are discovered from that era, which is presumably people just being scared of these incoming tribes and they're wanting to protect their income. So they're just burying it somewhere in the woods in the hope that they'll be able to rediscover it when things stabilise. Yeah. Presumably they don't rediscover it because things don't stabilise. Absolutely. And of course, it wouldn't be a pirate story without buried treasure, would it? Absolutely. In, in fairness, it would be quite easy to find because there's always big X's. If you've ever looked at the maps, they always <laughs> seem to bury stuff under these X landmarks. Yes, that's true. But maybe you could only see these giant X landmarks from the air. Ah, now did the pirates have planes? No, they did have aerial parrot divisions. D did they? Excellent. Yes, they had specially trained parrots. Now I would like you to attempt a pirate parrot in the style of an English RAF officer from the Second World War. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be an absolute train wreck. I'm going to have to start by getting into character with a piece of eight, piece of eight. Okay, that's yeah, good. I say, old boy, I say, old boy. <laughs> That's a whole audience of people clapping, Sam. You can you can do lots of overlays like Bohemian Rhapsody, and it will sound like lots and lots of people clapping. Excellent. That, that was wonderful. Very, very. That Thanks. Was, that was actually very good. That was actually very good. I'm not, I'm not going to attempt that because I'm not going to get any better than that. Anyway, 
Meanwhile in Gibraltar, the governor of Merida, which is a larger town inland, arrives with 400 well-armed men and arms an equal number of the men from the town. By the way, we should qualify, this is not the Gibraltar in the Mediterranean. No, absolutely not. It probably is actually just named after the Rock of Gibraltar in Spain. Yeah, so it's probably just named after the place in Spain. Batteries are set up, there are barricades erected uh, that are going to force the pirates into the woods or into the town. So when Lolonese's men attack Gibraltar, they fall into this trap and get slaughtered. Then clever old Lolonese faints a retreat, the Spaniards follow, so they get out of range of the artillery. The pirates reorganise themselves and then slaughter all the Spaniards, taking the town. The town is then looted and all the spoils are split fairly between the pirates. What do you think Lolonese then did to the local Spaniards? Did he behead them? Oh, he was just generally nasty. I haven't even put it in my notes, but I'm fairly sure I read that he was just generally nasty. He said very nasty things. He wasn't very polite about their cooking. Horrible things about their interior decor. Lolonese now has no problems getting men for future voyages because he's just looted a massive town and given all the spoils to his men. So word goes out that Lolonese is the man that you want to be with if you want to get some money. So Lolonese now voyages to Nicaragua. Bad weather makes the journey pretty slow going, so he stops off to find provision and decides he's just going to destroy a native tribe, take all their hogs, hens and millet. So, you know, he's just killed a few extra people just as an off. Just for funsies. Yeah, just for funsies, just like as a stop-off, just like on a road trip down to Devon. What I like is that he wasn't, he didn't like the Spanish, but at the same time, he was willing to learn from their practices. Yes. When in doubt, slaughter some locals. Yeah, absolutely. When in doubt, ethnic genocide. He decides to just ransack that area coastline while he's there. He finds a couple of Spanish storehouses and a small port with a ship, take it all, tortures the Spaniards to find out whether they'd hidden anything, and on we go. So same old story. They then march over land to San Pedro. They defeat some Spaniards who are laying in ambush, and they torture them for more information about any other ambushes. So there's a lot of torture going on here. He's a fan. He, he likes a bit of torture. And hear this one out. This is a good one. The Spaniards don't tell him, so what he does is he cuts out one of their hearts and gnaws on it in front of them, just to sort of show him that he really does mean business. Jesus. Yeah. Nice. He is an absolute psycho, this guy, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, nut job. And there are pictures... There's nothing funny about Lolonese. Exactly, there's no lol in Lolonese. No, there's just onaise. Yes, I suppose there is. <laughs> that took a moment. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking... I, I was wondering whether it was a joke, and I was like, no, no, it's actually just true. When you take lol out of yeah. Lolonese, it's just onaise. <laughs> yeah, so he takes San Pedro, and the Spaniards agree to surrender if they're given two hours to get out with all of their stuff. So it basically becomes a giant game of hide-and-seek. After two hours, the pirates go, 61, 60, 59, and they go all the way down to one. And then they just start ransacking the place. They try chasing them off into the woods and try and find as many of the Spaniards as they can and just try and get as large a pile of spoils as is possible. Uh, very nice of him to actually play the game, though, and to give them their two hours. Yeah, I think this is because San Pedro is presumably quite a big town and quite hard to take, and so it was a nice little compromise. It's a little bit of a game for Lolonese. A nice game, fun I game. I my life, something beginning with your heart. <laughs> <laughs> bit of an aside at this point, the, the author. Ex-Gwimlin has a little aside here regarding some of the Native Americans. And here's a good one for you, Sam, that I thought was quite interesting. There's a custom amongst some of them Native Americans whereby newborns are placed in a hole in the ground near a temple overnight in the nip. The child is left there until the tracks of a creature are seen in the mud and then that creature becomes the child's protector for their life. What if that creature is a wildcat that's out to eat the child? Absolutely. This seems to be... This seems to be a stupid tradition. <laughs> Think about it a different way, Sam. If the child survives the attack from a horrible wild animal, they then have that horrible wild animal as their protector for the rest of their life that they can call upon if they ever get in a bit of a pickle. That's true, isn't it? That's better than having a hedgehog, 
isn't it? It's better than having the tracks of a hedgehog. And oh fuck, I've got a hedgehog. Yes. I call upon hedgehog. <laughs> By the power of hedgehog. I stand corrected. It's a brilliant idea. Yes, yes. Now that I've explained it. I overlooked the clear logic. Yeah. Eventually, Lollanay's willing streak comes to an end. He gets stuck on a sandbank around Puerto Rico. A few of his pirates head inland and actually get caught by some of the, the locals who kill two of them and eat them. So we've got a bit of cannibalism going on there just to add a bit of more spice to the story. Spice indeed. Yes. Yes, well, yes. Do you know what would have dampened down the spice? What? Nice little dollop of Lollanay's, Tom. Hey. Well, yes, Lollanay's quite possibly does become a source quite shortly. For six months... This crew of pirates led by Lollanay's try and break apart their ship that's on a sandbank and rebuild something that could be launched and sent off. When they eventually build this boat, they send half of the men off to find bigger boats. They arrive in Panama, get involved with a few scuffles with some Spaniards and some Indians, and they come off the worst. So here we start to see Lollanay's winning streak coming to an end. Eventually, some Indians actually catch Lollanay's and some of his men. They chop him up and they burn him. There you go. Boom. And that's how it ends. That's how Lollanay's ends. That's how his story ends. He just gets chopped up and burnt by some Native Americans. A suitably brutal end. Absolutely. And a very abrupt brutal end. When you're reading it, there's there's quite a lot yes. of detail about the torture. And then it just gets to this point. It just says, And then uh, some uh, Native Americans captured him. And uh, they caught him up and burned him. And we heard <laughs> no more of Lollanay's. Exquamillion or whatever his name was. He liked the bits he liked. He wasn't that interested in the death. He was mostly into his torture. Yeah, he liked a bit of torture. Liked a lot of killing of Spaniards. Not that interested in the end. Yeah. No, but there you go. That's That was the end of this horrible Frenchman, Francis Lollanay's, or Jean-David Lowe. What a psychopath. I mean, a great story. Total psychopath. Really interesting. But what a nutcase. He comes across as an absolute psychopath. And if you look at the pictures of him in some of the original prints, he just looks like a fucking nutcase. He looks like <laughs> Joe Pesci's character from um, Goodfellas. Uh, do I look funny? Huh? Do I make you laugh? Am I some sort of clown? <laughs> Am I a joke to you? You know, sometimes I'm really glad that I live today. Yes. We're not without our problems. <laughs> yes, we have discussed this before, haven't we? Definitely have discussed this yes. before. Uh, it's not a pleasant time to live. It really isn't. No, I'm going to add it to the Mid-Roman Empire as one of the time periods that I actually wouldn't like to live in. But then I suppose the people who would be willing to go to these unknown lands where there were many rich, there were much riches to be had. There was instability, so you could climb the ladder quite quickly, presumably, and make quite a lot of money. I, they're risk-takers anyway, Sam, aren't they? They're genetic risk-takers. Yes. They're up one end of the spectrum, certainly. I think people like you <laughs> and I, who are probably not such great risk-takers, probably would have stayed at home. Although, that said, this guy was taken to the Caribbean as a slave and a servant, so he didn't really have much choice. Now, uh, before we go on, actually, Sam, I, I thought up a good game, and as you know, I work in the fitness industry, and I, for the last eight years, have pretty much just made up games for a living. <laughs> <laughs> and, and encouraged adults to play silly games. And I thought up the game, which is... I love a silly game, Tom. Good. Hey, I think you're going to like this one. And this silly game is, in your bestest, bestest pirate voice... Say a phrase right. that is the least piratey phrase you can think of. So something like <laughs> "shiver me timbers," but that is very, very unpiratey. Like um, ah, fold up me socks. Ah, my favourite gardener's world presenter is Monty Don. <laughs> That's more like it. <laughs> ah, pass me me felt tips. <laughs> ah, shiver me timbers. We've missed Bake Off. <laughs> Arr, you should always blind bake your flans. <laughs> <laughs> there is nobody on the seven seas like a soggy bottom. <laughs> 
What about... Arr! Bedtime at nine. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you know what? Pirates had, quite frequently in the pirate code, for various different captains, a bedtime. Did they? It was lights out at 8pm quite often, yeah. And story time. Did they have story time beforehand? I, I can only imagine so. Where they all broke into tears with the hungry caterpillar. <laughs> and it becomes a butterfly. <laughs> Arr, we're under attack. Fold up the book and put it in the bookcase. <laughs> See, that's why they have the pirate code, because you've got to have a written document in which you can fold all of your children's stories. <laughs> They're like hidden inside it, you know, they folded it up in the pirate's code in the big treasure map. But actually, what's inside? <laughs> right, I'm done, I'm done. Well, Tom, today I'm going to take you back to China. And you know I've never been that to China. China. You can't take me back to China. I've never been. No, I took us there in the podcast two weeks ago oh, with uh, with yes. the artifacts, yes, artifact story. And I'm going to take you back to China today, Tom, because when we in the West think of pirates, we tend to think of the type of pirate. <laughs> I mean, I'm not wrong. No, you're not. You know the <laughs> type of pirate. I was trying to categorise them all together. I was trying <laughs> yeah. to think of what was one phrase that could group together buccaneers, privateers, pirates, and bastards. And, uh, and what I came up with was the R. I'm not going to try and do a Chinese equivalent of R because it would just come out as kind of ah. <laughs> so I'm just going to say Chinese piracy. Now, boring. the South China Seas, Tom. Boring. boring. <laughs> yes, I know. Sorry. The South China Seas, Tom, throughout history have been an absolute hotbed of piracy for hundreds if not thousands of years because you've got an awful lot of very disparate city-states along an awful lot of very kind of well-hidden coves and bays and rivers so it's very very easy for small boats to get out there and basically cause havoc again in a kind of in a similar way to the way it was in the spanish main piracy was seen actually as a very good way of climbing the social ladder so pirates in China throughout history have mostly been kind of more of the Somali kind of pirates, sort of desperate fishermen out to supplement their income rather than government-sponsored bastards, <laughs> so to speak. Yep. But for those few fishermen pirates who really, really cottoned onto a good thing and rose up through the ranks of pirates and became more powerful, there was a lot of social status to be gained from it and a lot of official status as well. And I'll give you a good example of this. There was a guy called Ching Chelung who was active around the 1640s and he was born into the Portuguese colony in Macau. Macau is near Hong Kong and was a Portuguese colony until 1999, so until very recently. Good fact. And he was christened as Nicholas Gaspard, which is an unusual name for a Chinese bloke, but there we go, <laughs> before eventually leaving Macau and moving to Japan where he got a job with a shipping merchant. When that merchant died, he seized the company and used it to purchase a fleet of armed ships which he used to terrorise the South China Sea in an alliance with other local pirates. Now, eventually the Chinese emperor at the time had to bribe him with promises of being appointed the High Admiral of the Imperial Chinese Navy in order to get him to calm down. <laughs> Calm down. Calm down. Calm hey, like, down. Can, like, can you just calm down, mate? Hey, all <laughs> this piracy. Calm down. So he was basically bribed, and the Chinese emperor said to him, look, if you kill all of the other local pirates, I will make you my high admiral of the navy. And he did it. And so this guy who was born into absolute penury, born essentially a slave ended up becoming the chief of the Chinese Navy in exchange for killing all of the other pirates. And he was essentially allowed, under this imperial authority, to carry on being a pirate anyway. So he was still raiding shipping. Now he was just doing it with the imperial Chinese seal. Wow, what was his French name? His Portuguese name was Nicolas Gaspard. Oh, shit, I was hoping you were going to say it was Jacques. And then I was going to say Jacques the <laughs> pirate killer. Uh, uh. 
Uh. No, <laughs> not this time. This is just a, an example of how powerful these pirates could become, these pirate lords. At one point, he fell out with authorities in Canton, who withheld part of his admiral's pay packet in lieu of unpaid taxes. So he sailed into port, marched into the centre of the city with 6,000 of his pirates, Ooh, wow. set up a tribunal, summoned the tax officers to the tribunal in the square, had them hand over the cash, wrote them each a receipt with thanks... <laughs> marched back out to the harbour and sailed off without a shot being fired. Bit of a lad. Wow, 6,000. I thought Lollanaise was doing Six quite well. 6,000. 6,000. Well, the pirates that we're going to talk about today, the two who I'm really going to concentrate on, were pirates on an absolutely industrial and epic scale, Tom. They ended up with a fleet of over 300 ships and 40,000 pirates under their command. Wow. I mean, that's a bloody mini empire they at the time had approximately equivalent power to the royal navy wow yeah <laughs> so, where did they center their operations well it was all around this area around canton and macau which were the areas where the portuguese and the british had set up colonies and trading posts because it was where most of the international trade was happening because it was the only areas that had been really opened up to international trade they were already a, a kind of a melting pot of different cultures, a lot of which were out to cause trouble and make a quick buck. Awful lot of vice in the area where you've got sailors coming in. So yeah. uh, rife with prostitution and gambling and uh, just opportunities. Is there opium at this time? Yeah. Opium, yeah. huge amounts of opium. It was basically a cash printing machine for people who could rise up to a position of power, which is exactly what the pirates I'm going to concentrate on today did. And they were a pirate couple called Ching Shai and Cheng Yud. How romantic. Well, not that romantic, as we'll see. Okay. Because I was like, darling, darling, do you like piracy too? I love piracy, <laughs> darling. We're brought together by our hobbies. And so I met him plundering on the high seas. You'll never guess. Oh, you tell them, you tell them. Our eyes met across a pitch battle on board of a schooner. <laughs> Well, certainly Ching Shi became the most powerful and probably the richest pirate ever to live. So we'll start with Cheng Yud. And he was born in 1765 in Guangdong in China and followed in the traditional family business of looting ships and killing sailors, which his family had done for generations before him. Came from a very long line of pirates. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, given his family lineage, he was very good at this and quickly made himself a small fortune and very strong business connections in the area especially in and around Vietnam, which was in a period of rebellion at the time. And the rebels who didn't have a navy were frequently calling on Chinese pirates to come in and raid Vietnamese loyalist ships and villages. So he made an awful lot of money and an awful lot of connections that way. Now, in about 1798, on one particular raid, he captured a 15-year-old boy called Chung Po, who he pressed into service both as a pirate and as his apprentice and as his lover. He is my apprentice, but also my lover and also my friend. But more on him later. <laughs> These podcasts are splattered with basically grooming, aren't they? <laughs> yes, historically it's not uncommon. No. I don't go out and pick stories which have grooming in them. They just happen to come to me. Yeah, they, do, they just <laughs> yes. seem to appear randomly through all, all periods of history, absolutely. Yes. Well, Chung Po is quite central to this story, and I, I'm just going to put it out there. His late teenage years slash early 20s were quite fucked up. Right, yeah. He would have been taken into social services. Is this what we're saying? Yes. He came out on top in the end. <laughs> As he got older, got more seniority. <laughs> yes. Yes, he ended up on the top. He started out as the bottom, I think. <laughs> um, but more on Chung Po later. 
Cheng didn't just want a lover and an apprentice, he wanted a wife. And there was one particular woman he just could not get enough of, and she was called Ching Shi. She was the madam of a floating brothel. A floating brothel? Yeah, they were called flower palaces or flower boats. What's the appeal of shagging a hooker on a boat versus on land? Because the authorities can't find you and people are less likely to see you uh, engaging in nefarious acts. Oh, okay, okay, it is elite, okay. I'm not talking from experience here, by the way. <laughs> I, I realise I said that with. I, I, I realise I said that with probably too much confidence. <laughs> this is just from the books that I've read, honestly, Governor. Again, Ching's family had been pirates for generations, and she was fully aware of the trade. But more importantly, the walls of her brothel boat had ears, and so she had access, yes, through the ladies that she controlled, to the innermost circles of local government and business in the area. And it's not clear whether their match was love or purely business, but it can be said that when they married, she was guaranteed by contract a 50% share of Cheng's business. Wow. So there was definitely some entrepreneurial savviness there. Yeah, absolutely. Now, these two pirates had two kids of their own, but also formally adopted Chung Po as their son and rightful heir to the business and set about becoming ludicrously powerful. And when I mean powerful, I mean really quite powerful. The family controlled the Red Flag Fleet, which had 300 ships and somewhere between 20 to 40,000 sailors. And as I've said, that's roughly the size of the Royal Navy at the time in terms of shipping and manpower. So absolutely huge, a huge force. Was this basically just a massive gang? This wasn't a state-authorised operation, was it? Yeah, they were not sanctioned by the Chinese government wow. at all. In fact, in fact, they fought them openly on many occasions. So the Red Flag Fleet was the largest member of a confederation of pirates in and around Macau and Canton, which were known as the Six Fleets, and each fleet had a colour. And this total fleet consisted of 800 large and 1,000 small ships and around 70,000 sailors. So an absolutely vast, vast, vast criminal underworld. Well, not really an underworld, because it's operating yeah, very much yeah. in the open, which is just an absolutely... It's a ludicrous number. These are 70,000 pirates who are having to be supported by the local community. They're raiding shipping and raiding towns and villages, but these towns and villages, they have to support this 70,000-person raiding army. That's incredible. At all times. So just the, the local economy being able to support that many pirates is obscene. Anyway, they went around raiding quite happily and ruling over this confederation of pirates for a few years, but in 1807, Cheng Yu died in Vietnam, in circumstances which may or may not have involved an accident at the hands of Ching Shi. Uh, at any rate, she very quickly moved to take full control of the family business and also very quickly took on the adopted family son, Ching Po, as her second in command and, unsurprisingly, Tom, her lover. So poor old Ching Po has been the lover of Cheng Yud for several years, as well as his adopted son, and is now also the lover and adopted son of Cheng Yud's wife, Ching Shi. Good. Whilst also being the second in command of the family business slash enormous pirate empire. So, as I've said, he had a very mixed up childhood. Yeah. What did they see in him? Was he was he just very good looking? What, what, what? I think he was a very good pirate. At the age of 15, he showed pirate promise. He did, yeah. He was very good at, w at what he did. Born with one leg. <laughs> he did. Which is a great start. Ah, he came out of the womb with a patch over one eye. <laughs> we thought, that's our man. <laughs> That's our boy. He could talk to parrots like no one else. <laughs> but Ching was an absolutely brutal pirate leader. She was probably on par with Lolanese in terms of her absolute psychopath tendencies. 
She seized towns and cities along the Chinese coast, beheading the men, normally, which was a favourite pastime of hers, and selling the women and children into slavery or pressing them in as pirates. She set up offices and administrations in all the towns she captured to extol protection money around the coast, and indeed she set up offices to extol protection money in towns under control by the Chinese government. She'd just move in, set up a heavily armed office under the nose of the local administration, and demand protection money from everyone, just like modern gangsters do, I guess. These stories of these pirates are making you realise that something like ISIS is, is nothing historically new. No, God no. Is it? No, 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 no. <laughs> it really isn't. No, God, absolutely Taliban, not. It's not historically new stuff. No, definitely. Uh, she created an entire underground shadow government, essentially, with its full-own administration, its own navy, its own army, and she had absolutely no problem at all attacking different government forces. She attacked the Portuguese, she attacked the British, and she attacked the Qing government navy, defeating them time and time again. In fact, one Qing fleet that was sent to destroy her in 1808, she defeated them so roundly and captured so many of their ships that they were forced to rent fishing boats from the locals to fight on. <laughs> and eventually the commanders scuttled their own ships so that they wouldn't have to go out and fight her. Because they just thought they were going to lose. Yeah, they were so convinced they were all going to die. And we've actually got quite a nice account of what life was like under her rule from an Englishman called Richard Glasspool, who was... <laughs> Glasspool. <laughs> Richard Glasspool. Pool. Pool, sorry. Now, Richard Glasspool was the commander of an East India Company ship called the Marquis of Ely. And he was captured in 1808 and spent 11 weeks in captivity. And he wrote an account of his time in captivity and of the way that Ching ruled her pirate coven. He writes about her pirate code, which was really quite harsh. Pirates are famous for their pirate codes, and pirates are almost harder on themselves than they are on the people they capture and the people they attack, because obviously you've got an awful lot of outlaws and you have to keep order. And her code went something like this. Disobeying orders, beheaded on the spot. Whoa. Anyone who steals from villagers that willingly supplied the pirates beheaded on the spot. Whoa, no first written warning then. Nope. All goods that were seized were publicly inspected by the pirates and everything was accounted for. The captain who seized it got 20% to split among his crew and the rest was placed in the company funds. Any cash that was seized was to be spent on resupplying all of the ships and distributed equally so that ships that were less successful would still get supplies and food and withholding any cash would be a whipping offence for a first offence or a beheading offence thereafter. Off with their head! Big on decapitation was Ching. Yeah, sounds like it. Jeez. She really enjoyed and personally decapitated people. Captive women were actually treated surprisingly well. They were to be released. In reality, the pirates were... They got away with ransoming them off, or they were allowed to marry them. But if they married them, they were expected to be faithful. And if they weren't faithful, the pirate would be beheaded. <laughs> I was going to say, off with his off head! Off with his head. Ugly ladies were released. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody right, so they got one thing right. Absol absolutely. They? No, no, one thing right. A woman's worth is totally dependent on her look. Well, considering that Ching grew up as a brothel mistress, I'm not entirely surprised that she had that view. No. Anyone caught raping a female captive was beheaded on the spot. But if sex was consensual, but out of wedlock, the pirate was beheaded and the woman was drowned. She had a cannonball tied to her ankles and was thrown overboard. Nice. And according to Richard Glasspool, other offences such as deserting would get your ears chopped off and many, many other minor transgressions would see you <laughs> flogged or killed. <laughs> your, your ears chopped off? Yeah. So what? 
What? Are you a deserter? Right, I don't think that's worthy of a head. What other part of the body could we chop off? Ears! Chop off his ears! What a strange decision. Yeah, well, you're not going to run away again, are you? Well, you, you, you chop off their legs. That doesn't leave you an awful lot of use as a pirate. <laughs> um, now, what could you do as a pirate without legs? <laughs> Just to be used as a figurehead mast on the front of the boat. <laughs> Coming through! <laughs> <laughs> Bob. Oh, I like James. Oh, ran away, oh, did you? Oh, oh. you didn't get very far. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a bad life, this. It's not a bad life. I get fed. I don't have to scrub the decks anymore. <laughs> Lovely views. Not very nice in a storm. <laughs> Quite hard on the neck as well, all this leaning forward business. Difficult when they try and board. You do end up with a bit of a bump on the head. But... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, sometimes I'm just flailing around at the front, just swinging my arms in the air. Oh, no. I just want to get involved, you know, I just want to join in, but I've got no legs, so I just try my best. Uh, I quite like that idea. I mean, I don't, it's horrible. But... No, it's a fantastic idea, not at all cruel. But unfortunately, as for all pirates, the success couldn't last forever. And in 18... I hope we don't have any people without legs listening to this podcast. Because it's not the first time we've laughed hysterically at people without legs. No. I mean, I I have to... Because my dad only had one leg, I feel not just like not justified in laughing. Is that right? Not Is justified that in laughing, but I've never had any qualms about laughing about it because I grew up making jokes about false legs. Well, yeah, I've got African ancestors from about 100,000 years ago, Sam, so I'm quite happy making jokes about black people. I think it's probably fine. Uh, yes. Was, was that clicking, the sound of you editing? <laughs> was that what that was? <laughs> Immediately edit. Immediately. <laughs> we cannot let that go to air. <laughs> oh, dear. Carrying swiftly on. Unfortunately for Ching and her pirates, it couldn't last forever. In 1809 and 1810, the Portuguese Navy squadron based at Macau finally had enough got pissed off and set out to end the pirate threat once and for all in a series of battles known collectively as the Battle of the Tiger's Mouth at the edge of the Pearl River Delta. Oh, that's a good one. It's a great name, isn't it? Now, the Portuguese fleet was absolutely tiny. (laughs) At the start of these series of battles, they had three ships and by the end they had six and these ships were not big ships they were brigs and schooners which in naval terms, they're, they're quite small ships. They had 16 to 18 guns each but they were much more heavily armed and much more heavily armoured than the individual Chinese junks, the boats that the Chinese pirates were using. They had much bigger, much better and far more accurate cannons which fired exploding balls over longer range and would decimate any pirate ship with a single shot. So actually, it was a pretty evenly matched battle between 300 pirate ships and six Portuguese ships. 300 versus six, wow. 300 versus six. And in the third and final part of the battle, which happened in January 1810, Chung Po, lover to his mother and second in command, took all 300 of his pirate ships out to attack the Portuguese. Now, unfortunately, when you've got 300 ships tied up in a 
a river delta, a river basin, they all got in each other's way and they were so tightly packed that it was almost impossible for them to land any shots on the Portuguese. Ah, yes. Meanwhile, the Portuguese could just fire everything they had into this mass of pirate ships and were almost guaranteed to take out two or three with every single shot that they fired. It was absolutely shooting fish in a barrel for the Portuguese and it was a massacre. This is one of those classic tactics of military command, isn't it? This is the, if you're outnumbered, make sure that the field of battle is narrow. Yes, absolutely. That's the Battle of Cannae. Uh, I was going to say, very much like the Battle of Cannae. Yeah, numbers don't mean everything all the time. So the the pirates basically were their own worst enemy by just there being too many of them. And they were completely, completely massacred by the Portuguese in their six little ships, who eventually managed to blockade them into the mouth of the river. Two weeks later, the pirates surrendered to the Portuguese and agreed to accept an amnesty from the Chinese government because, as we've discovered already, the Chinese government was not above buying off powerful pirates to supplement its own navy. People who knew the local area, knew local businesses and could get shit done at a time when it was very difficult to rule over a very large kingdom such as China. So, essentially, they surrendered to the Chinese government who allowed them to keep most of their fleet and keep all of their bounty. (laughs) So... All of the money that they've made from piracy, they kept. Chung Po was offered a Kushti Navy job as a reward, which he took and eventually rose up the ranks, along with being allowed 120 ships of his own for his own private use to continue his uh, import-export business. (laughs) Ching, on the other hand, being a woman, was not allowed to serve in the Navy and was not allowed to be given a government position, so she just retired a very, very, very rich woman and opened up a series of brothels and casinos and a salt trading business and became ludicrously, ludicrously wealthy. She had the government annul the adoption agreement for Chung Po, so he was no longer her son, and she was given permission to marry him, so the two officially married and had several children together and lived very happily. And unlike most pirates, Ching actually managed to retire and die at the ripe old age of 69 in her bed. An incredibly rich and happy woman having earned a fortune from a lifetime of vice. And there is one final footnote to this story, Tom, which is that during the First Opium War, she was taken out of retirement and hired in as a naval advisor to the Chinese government to fight the British. Wow. <laughs> just one uh, one little signifier of just how successful as a sailor and pirate she was. And that is the story of Ching Shi, history's probably most successful pirate, and one of the only ones who managed to retire and die happily and peacefully. I think she would have classed that as a successful career. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Only one major naval defeat in her entire career. Granted, it was a rather embarrassing one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It was uh, 1844 she died, so actually quite late on, by pirate standards. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And when were the Opium Wars? So the first one was in... 1839 to 1842, so just shortly before she died. Well, I never. That's fascinating. The sheer scale of that is very, very interesting. And the obvious comparisons between that and things like ISIS and the Taliban, etc. Just these horrible mafia-like organisations that managed to evolve and grab power. Rather sadly, when I read up on her, I was really excited to have discovered her. And then I discovered right at the end of this that actually she did appear as a character in the Pirates of the Caribbean films which I haven't, which I haven't seen so she might not be as unwell known <laughs> as I thought oh yeah 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 but there we go I've thoroughly enjoyed researching her anyway I had a wonderful time this week learning about Ching Chung and also Cheng as well a confusing series of names for my th- three pirates Ching Chung, Ching, Cheng. Chung and Cheng sounds like a sort of Chinese children's comedy trio it does yes actually it does let's have fun beheading people today kids <laughs>
Now here's one I decapitated earlier. How many have we decapitated? One, <laughs> two, <laughs> three, <laughs> Count decapula, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, very good. <laughs> Two pieces of eight. Hey there, Ching. Hey there, Chung. <laughs> hey, like my rubber ducky. What are you doing today? Oh, you know, just beheading some Spaniards. <laughs> I didn't realise we did such good Sesame Street impressions. <laughs> there we go. Multi-skilled, multi-talented. No, you tried Kermit in one of the earlier podcasts, I did. didn't you? <laughs> Can you do another Kermit? Oh, hey there, Miss Piggy. <laughs> oh, that was good. That was very good. That was nowhere near as crap as when you first tried it. I have an idea for a topic for next week. Can I put it to you? You might have an idea, but I've got an idea too. Okay, let's compare ideas. So, unfortunately, my idea has come off the back of Brexit. Now, I don't want to talk about Brexit in this podcast. We're a happy place. Let's not. But let's not talk about Brexit. There is a politician called Marc Francois who is a very ruddy-faced man, part of the uh, pro-Brexit group, who threatened Europe this week with perfidious Albion if they didn't give in. And so I would like to do perfidious Albion as a topic, which is basically British dickheadedness or English dickheadedness over history. So perfidious Albion is a French term which means that England can't be trusted. And that's my idea. Okay, English dickheads. Yeah, English dickheadedness. Dick What's the difference? Define dickheadedness. Well, it could be dickheads or it could be general dickishness on the part of England as a nation. I get the impression this is going to be popular with anyone from any of the Commonwealth countries. <laughs> yeah, not short of ideas, are we? Yeah, no, they all generally like to have a bit of a bitch about the British Empire, don't they? Yes, yeah. absolutely. I thought of a few decent ones. Uh, what did I come up with? I always forget them. I always think up some good topics and then forget them. I mean, Pirates was a great one. Yeah, it was a, it was a cla- I reckon we can re- we return to Pirates. I think There's so. There's plenty I of think scope so. for more Pirates. Um, pirates part deux. <laughs> pirate boogaloo. There are, there are t- <laughs> <laughs> this time with more shivers. <laughs> twice the shivers, twice the timbers. It'll have you on the edge of your plate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to do English dickheadedness. I like that. Historical English dickheadedness. So examples of English people being, and not just like, ha, 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 we hate the English, because, uh, yeah, yeah, we all know you hate the English. Um, we'll do genuine examples of English people being dicks. I yep. like that. Perfidious Albion. Great topic. Perfidious album. Uh, album? <laughs> Perfidious Albion. Yes. I have to say, Perfidious Albion Perfidious Albion does sound like a difficult second conceptual jazz album for some <laughs> for <laughs> some Perfidious free Albion. jazz quintet, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I think that's probably it for this week, Tom. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. And we shall see you next week. Oh, actually, there's another thing. I, I do have to mention T-shirts. We've got some T-shirts printed. And if you want to win one, you can. I'm going to give three T-shirts away. And the way to get your hands on a T-shirt is to share one of our episodes on your social media platform of choice. Tag us in it on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. On Facebook, we are at that was genius. On Instagram, at that was genius. And on Twitter, that underscore was underscore genius. And let us know by tagging us in it that you've shared it and you could win yourself a T-shirt. Preferably don't be too sherry if you live on Easter Island 
or somewhere like that. No. Because Sam will be sending this from Manchester. Yes. <laughs> and postage and packaging, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So only share once if you're from Easter Island. Arrange amongst yourself who's going to get the T-shirt. And on that note, we will see you next week. <laughs>